morning. I think maybe what we need to do between these chapters, Samuel, is like read some Gospel of John or something. We go from from humiliated households to murder conspiracies now. It's like watching Blue Bloods. Man, the Word of God is intense. All right. Well, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to 2 Samuel. We're in chapter 13. We're going to be talking today about David's helter-skelter. And no, not that sweet Beatles song. David's helter-skelter is full of discord and uh, disharmony and ugliness. It is a helter-skelter world that he has made. Before we consider the fruit of his work and how he is suffering, let us... um, pray together. Let us go before the throne of grace that we might look at these words and the the word of God with an open heart and mind. Father, in heaven we thank you for um, David's humility, Lord, for his, his life, which he lived in public, which he lived before your throne, which he lived before the eyes of the world not only in his own day, but ever uh, since. We pray, Lord, that as we consider uh, the sins that he has committed and the things that he suffered at his own hand, that we would learn, Lord God, to be humble, to walk uprightly, to fear you, to consider our own lives, Lord, and not merely point and snicker and not point and judge, Lord God, but to, to look in a mirror and consider our own faces, our own hearts, our own minds, our own lives, We thank you for the ministry of the prophets, Lord, who recorded this story. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a deep understanding of its meaning, that you would not only teach us more about you, but teach us more about ourselves, that we may serve you better. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your Son, and amen. Amen. So now what I'm going to do is just read the whole story, instead of going bit by bit, and then I will explain the story, and then I will do a little preaching at the end. So if you would go, chapter 13, beginning in verse 23. Now, after two full years, Absalom had, had sheep shearers at Belhazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. But he pressed him. He would not go up, but gave him his blessing. David blessed him. Then Absalom said, If not, please, let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark then, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous. Be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord, the king, so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. 
But Absalom fled, and the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it has come about. Oh, look, I'm a prophet. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all the servants wept very bitterly. And Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Odd. Odd bit there. Bad news is good news. Strange. Now, Absalom had hated Amnon. He's already murdered him. That's, what it's, that's how we ended last week with 2 Samuel 13, 22, and Absalom hated Amnon. Absalom murdered Amnon. All that's left now is to, to take what he has in his heart and bring it about in the real world, and he plotted for two years. That is a long conspiracy. Two years is a long time to keep a conspiracy. Now, Satan is the father of lies. He is the father of murderers. He is a murderer. He has been since the beginning. And so what we find right here in the beginning is that Absalom, David's son, is the serpent's seed, a greater Cain. So just like Eve brought forth both households, the sons of Satan and the sons of God, so we see that in David, through him, we have both the sons of Satan and the sons of God. 1 John 3.12 says we should not be like Cain, who was the evil one and murdered his brother. Now, who wants to be of that house? Murdering our own brothers. Now, I know brothers can be difficult. I have two. Perhaps thoughts of murder have passed through my mind a time or two. But what we have here is a household where the the evil sin in the heart of, of, of Absalom because that's what it is. He's murdered him already in his heart. Now what he wants to do is he's going to bring it about. And this, what, what, this brings him into the, the sphere of some very nasty characters in history. There are not a lot of men who go out and murder their own brothers. It's not a group that I would like to be, right? I would not like to be associated with. First John 3.15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This is what is, we have to understand, right? This, John, he says, don't be of Cain who murdered his brother. And then he goes for, for, further because he knows the Lord Jesus. Anyone who's murdered your brother in his heart does not have eternal life there. If you have death in your heart, you can't also have life in your heart. That's what the word of God is very clear about. If death dwells there because you are so angry, because you are so full of hatred, because you are so full of vengeance, because you are so full of judgment of others, if hate fills your heart, life cannot. And that's what we have to understand about ourselves. If our hearts are full of hate, love and life cannot live there. Now, if Absalom had hated Amnon's crime, amen, amen. That would have been commendable. He might have justly even prosecuted him by a due course of law. I mean, two years is a long time. You can't figure out a a, a way to bring a guy into court. For two years, you can't figure out a way to bring him before before the courts, before the king. What if he went every day and, and got on his knees and appealed to the king? Please give my sister justice. Please give my sister justice, right? We learn... We learn from Jesus that there is a widow who does this to a judge, and what finally happens? The judge is like, just to get you to shut up, I'm going to do it. 
right? Why? Because eventually people will be nagged into doing whatever it is they're being nagged into doing. So there is a righteous nagging that probably could have worked for him here, but he didn't go that route. Because perhaps there's more going on than simply vengeance for his sister. Because if Amnon is supposed to be the next in line, if you get rid of Amnon, well, then who's going to be the king? Oh, oh, so this isn't just about Tamar. He didn't hate him for his sin. He hated him. He didn't want justice. He wanted assassination. That's very different. Okay, I understand that a public execution and assassination look very similar, but they are fundamentally not the same thing. Okay, they're not the same thing. And our understanding that, that nuance is what, right, that sanctified wisdom is what the church is supposed to do. This is why people say to you, well, how, how, is, it, how is it that you want the death penalty but you don't like abortion? Who, what, world, what planet are you living on? Those are not the same. Right? I, know there's a, I know there's a dismemberment involved, but they're not the same. And this is the kind of sanctified wisdom that we have to have that Absalom does not have. He wants his brother to be executed for a crime. Fine. Do it the right way. Don't take justice into your own hands. Absalom is offering to repair the violation of the seventh commandment by himself violating the sixth. And this is what I'm always saying. If you don't cover sin properly, you will cover sin with sin. Okay, so you violate a commandment, and you know what I'm going to do to make it better is I'm also going to violate a commandment. That Nowhere in God's word is that how we're supposed to use God's word. Leviticus 19, verses 17 to 18, it says very specifically, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall not... But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, this is what I love about parts of Leviticus. Doesn't that sound like something Jesus would say? It sounds just like what Jesus would say. And our, in the fact that we're so unfamiliar with the book of Leviticus, sometimes we have a hard time seeing the connections between the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. I'm not going to go down that road right now, but I'm just going to state that fact and move on. But this sounds very much like what Jesus says. Don't kill your brother in your heart. Reason it out. Go to court. Work on it. If you have a problem with a brother, deal with it. James chapter 2, verse 11 says, For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Okay, it's not as if, right, Amnon commits uh, fornication with his sister, Okay, so he's a sinner. So how are you going to make that better by yourself committing a sin? You can't cover sin with sin. It's never going to work. All you're going to have is more blood, more death, more destruction, more evil. Sin is either covered according to God's law or it is covered by more sin. Absalom isn't dealing with this the right way. He's compounding the problem. Now, Absalom's patience in dealing with Amnon is frankly noteworthy. I wish we were all as patient as Absalom. That could be like a joke amongst us now. Be as patient as Absalom. Because for me, if, I, right, if you really have set your face towards doing this thing, two years is a long time. It's a long time. Two whole years. Now, instead of attacking Amden immediately, the strategy here is to lure Amden into a sense of security by letting it just go and, right, I'm not going to do anything. I'm fine. I, I'm not going to say anything good or bad to him. So after two years, I imagine Amnon is like, wow, man, he got over that pretty quick. I'm pretty safe. I think, I think things are fine. You want me to go to a party with you? I'll go to a party with you. You seem fine. You seem fine. Now, sheep shearing 
is supposed to be a festive, uh, a festival. That's what it's supposed to be. You get everybody together. You get all the sheep together. You go out there. You shear them. Uh, uh, you slay a few of them. You eat it. It's a barbecue because what you're doing is bringing in the harvest. It's, it's like if you go and you bring in the wheat or you bring in the corn, and there's these parties usually with, when you bring in the fruit of your hands. And so what they're doing, sheep shearing, is bringing in the fruit of your, their hands. Look at all this wool we collected. Look at all these fat, happy sheep that we've raised. And so you don't just go out and do the business, you know, do the business and come home. You, go, you take everybody out there, you set up some tents, and you have a big party. Now, there are examples from Genesis of this, but there is another example, not that long ago in the history of David's life, that they're actually um, using as a basis for this one. They want us to see the festival from 1 Samuel 25 in this festival now that Absalom is holding. He says, hey, let's all, like, right? This is why it's not weird. Hey, everybody come out here and do this thing with me because we're going to rejoice in God's provision and goodness. Everybody, and then people are like, oh, okay, let's think about it. It's not weird that he invites them to this party. But back in 1 Samuel 25, what the authors are doing here are preparing the reader for the untimely death of a second Nabal. Remember Nabal the fool? Nabal, Abigail's, I like how so many of you went, mm-hmm, thank you. That's what I'm talking about. We remember. Good. First Samuel 25.2, this is what it says. And there was a man whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. And then it goes down in verse 36. It says, and Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry with wine, for he was very drunk. Now, Nabal, whose heart, like Amnon's heart, is full of wine, will both die. They will both die full of drink. Amnon is another fool, as Tamar twice mentioned, when she warned him against doing this foolish thing, this disgraceful thing. She also charged him that he was acting like a Nebulum. Right? He's acting like a fool. You're being a fool. You're going to be one of the most outrageous fools Israel has ever seen. So she said it. Right? She's the Abigail, just like Abigail, trying to stop a Nabal from doing the foolish act. It didn't work. He's done it, and now he's going to die like Nabal. Okay? It's ironic that Absalom's vengeance upon Amnon's rape of Tamar involves food. Amnon's use of food was a ruse, and now it's come back on his own head. Oh, yeah, you're going you're gonna to pretend to have a meal and, and do this terrible thing? Well, I'm going to pretend to have a meal, and I'm going to do a terrible thing. And, and you, right? Food is supposed to be something that people who are at peace with one another enjoy, right? The table fellowship is a huge deal, not only to the New Testament saints, but to the saints throughout history. And to use something that gives life as a means of death or a means of wickedness, it, it just shows us how far David's house has fallen already, Right? And, and, and the, ju- like, the civil war isn't the judgment. This is the judgment. Right? This is the judgment's already come. And everything, all the judgment that comes after this extends out of this. They're using table fellowship to commit heinous sins. Now, David, or Absalom is very shrewd to invite David. Right? He starts at the top. Nothing funny is going on at this party, Dad, because I want you to be there. By asking for all the king's sons as well and the king himself, he's trying to put everyone off their guard, and it works. Now, Absalom wanted his family to see justice. I think that's his motivation. I want everybody to come down. I want everybody to go out to this party with me. And what I want you to see is what ought to happen in Israel to a kind of person like Amnon. He wants to show the household that there is somebody who still cares about justice. 
Now, David, the ever astute interpreter of human motivation up till this point, immediately has suspicions. And you're like, okay, here's old David again. He's like, what's up with this? Why do you want to take him? But it doesn't last long. He's not seeing clearly. Why does he want Amnon to be the guest of honor? So he's asking questions, but Absalom artfully rebuffs the king's attempts by simply repeating the question over and over again, right? Demonstrating what possibly could have worked if he would have just asked for justice a bunch of times. Because here he is avoiding answering the question. He just keeps asking the question. Finally, the king's like, ah, fine. Go for it. Here's my blessing. Now, the gamble pays off. David graciously declines Absalom's petition, even though Absalom urges him. He, he refuses to go. He even blesses the whole thing. He clearly doesn't understand what's going on. Now, if the king will not go, then Amnon, the crown prince, will go. Yay! But this, Absalom succeeded in manipulating his father into a defensive position. Right? He's already, this is kind of like the rules in the court and how it works. It, the king has already said no once. He can't say no twice now. This is also a trick. This is kind of like how it works in court. You can't de- deny people more than one time. You've got to eventually say yes to them, otherwise you lose courtiers. So now that he's already said no one time, you can't possibly say no a second time. And, and this, it, this was interesting. I, I read way more about this probably than I should have. But it's actually a very clever trick that he's used. Now, I, right, you're not going to go out. You're too busy. You're the king. Who cares about sheep shearing, even for you? Right? It's, it's stupid. But now that you've said no, you can't say no again. Now you've got to say yes. And this is part of how David, of all people, is tricked. And not only that, he's tricked, right? He's now a tool for twice in a row of being used in a plot of one of his children against another one of his children, right? Because Amnon used David to get Tamar to trust him, and now Absalom has used David to get Amnon to trust Absalom. And you're like, David, are you not paying attention to the kind of children you've raised? Clearly you're not. For the second time, both of them after the sin with Bathsheba, David is portrayed as having been deceived and implicated in the plots of his children. And, and this is usually how it works. If you're implicated in a plot, you get charged with the same crime. Okay? If I were the police and I came and I shake you down and I find out that you knew all about the bank robbery, in fact, you helped, you know, you went to the store and you bought masks and you bought a hammer, but you didn't go. But you just bought the stuff that they needed. We would arrest you and charge you with the robbery. That's how This is how the law works. And so David, two times in a row, is actually implicated in the plot against his own children. In, in a just court, he would have been charged with both crimes because he actually helped bring both of them about. Right? You can't be this kind of Ponzi and not end up in prison. So just, right? just because you're not physically there when the crime takes place, if you in any way knew or helped, you will actually go to jail. Just in case you were wondering if you could get out of it. David is implicated here. Now, Proverbs 26, verses 24 through 28 reads, Whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. A lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Now, this is Solomon who read, right? This is the proverb of Solomon, David's son, who learned a thing or two, watching his own father, his own brothers, his own sister, and all of the chaos that came, through, came into the household because of David's failure to uphold the word of God. Right? Whoever is full of hate, this is Absalom, disguises himself with his lips. He harbors deceit in his heart. How would you trust such a person? 
Now David, who had become a snake in Uriah's garden, is twice deceived by snakes in his own garden. And that's the judgment of God. You want, to be, you want, to play, you want snakes in, in somebody's house? You want to come into somebody's garden and start playing snake? Start playing liar? Start playing murderer? Start playing adulterer? You want to play that game? Fine. Here you go. Here are two snakes in your own garden that you raised, that you brought into this world, that you trained how to do the very thing that they're now doing to you and to your house. This is God's judgment. This is a helter-skelter world. And, and, we, and we remember, how? How did he get here? Because he reviled God's word. He's reviled God's word, and here he is with snakes that have come from him, running around, making chaos in his own house. Now, in certain manuscript traditions, they don't have it in the ESV as far as I understand, but it actually states that Absalom made a banquet like the banquet of a queen, or a king, I'm sorry, like the banquet of a king. And in certain manuscripts, they have this phrase, because what calling back to is Nabal, who had a banquet like a king. Right? There's, it's so big that Nabal looked like a king. He was celebrating on such a scale. Now, Absalom is doing the same thing. It's so big, it looks like the feast of a king. Now, why? Because that, that actually is a helpful clue. Because this isn't simply about vengeance. This is about the fact that he, too, wants to be king. He's throwing a feast like a king. We're going to see he's going to do it again later. This is foreshadowing. He's throwing these parties like he's already king because he, he's seeing further down the road than David is. He has plans, and he's bringing them about. Now, now we get to the actual murder itself. Now, Absalom's servants are a little horrified by what's been suggested to them. Their argument lasts all of, you know, half a sentence. But, but they understand what David does to people who kill royalty. Okay, you, we, we've been following this story for quite some time. This is how David responds if you raise your hand against the anointed of the Lord or his sons. Second Samuel, this is back at the start of this book, Chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. It says, But David answered the sons of Ramon, the Barathite, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed, shall I not require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them, and cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them beside the pool of Hebron. Why? Because they had, right? the man brought good news, what he thought was good news, about the death of Saul and his sons. And David was like, take his head off. Then later, Ishbosheth, who is the prince, the prince of Saul's household, he gets murdered in his own bed. How do you think David might respond when he was in his right mind if you murder one of his sons at a feast? Right? That was a household he didn't like very much. And that's how he responded. And this is his own household. If I were these guys, I'd be like, you know what? How about you do it yourself, Absalom? Right? You want to do that? Why are you telling me to do it? You do it. And because this is a topsy-turvy world, Joshua, who's very confused and also reviles the word of God, is going to now quote, of all people, Joshua. He's going to quote Joshua, who's trying to, like, rally Israel back at the conquest. He's like, all right, guys, now we're going to do this thing. And I know your eyes are wide with terror, and you're frightened. Joshua says, listen, listen, in chapter 1, verse 9, he says, listen, guys, Israel, come on. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. 
But instead, he changes it just a little bit. He says, hey, guys, don't be afraid. Man up. I command you. Well, well so, wait. So God was commanding them to not be afraid to go into a land full of giants and slay them. You're telling them to not be afraid because you, who are God, command them to murder this person? Right? Who does he think he is in this story? He thinks he's Joshua saving the land. He thinks he's Joshua leading Israel against Israel's enemies. He, right? Now, he thinks he's a giant killer. His father's a giant killer, and he slayed right, Philistine giants. Now you have Absalom, who's tre- talking to his men as if they're going into the land to kill giants. Well, who are those giants, I wonder? David? Right? You see, right? This is why it's Helter Skelter. It's absolutely topsy-turvy. It's chaos what's happening now. Good is bad, and bad is good, and joy is sorrow, and sorrow is joy. And they can't even get their biblical character straight. These men, Absalom's counterfeit courage and obedience, Absalom's counterfeit followers here, they are not valiant. They are criminals. We see that restraint and protection have departed from David's house, and his sons have become antitypes of the great men of faith. Woe to us if this happens to us, right? This is is why... Right? Parenting is a timed event with consequences that go on for generations. It, he has a son here who thinks he's Joshua. And what he's doing is not delivering the land, but bringing curse and judgment and wickedness to the land. Romans chapter 1, verse 32. Romans chapter 1, verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is Absalom. Not only is it his, he, he totally approves this whole thing. It's wicked what you're doing, but go ahead and do it because I'm with you. <laughs> I'll take the punishment. Don't worry about it. Now Amnon, who lived like a Nabal, a total fool, dies like a Nabal, like a total fool. The connection between Nabal and Amnon also highlights the difference between Absalom and his father. When David encountered the fool, he was ready to take vengeance, but he was restrained. He comes to Nabal and he says, listen, I'm going to chop that guy's head off. And he stopped his passion by whom? Abigail. Well, there's no Abigail to save Absalom now because she's, in, she's tucked away somewhere weeping. Right? They, they've destroyed the Abigails in their household. The, the, one, the, the women, Lady Wisdom no longer dwells amongst them because she is in the closet of shame. And so here, there is nobody to restrain Absalom like there was to restrain David because David, even in that story, is a man of blood, he's a man of righteousness, he's a man of passions, and what you need is Lady Wisdom in order, to, in order to help you control those. David, because he was living under God's grace, had Abigail, the Lady Wisdom, who's going to restrain him. Amongst the brothers now, there is no Lady Wisdom because she's hiding in shame. They've turned her out. They've sent her away. They will have none of her. Now, Unrestrained by his father or anyone else, Absalom stretches out his hand against the, his Nabalite brother. And, and in the same way, he would raise his hand against Nabal, his father, who rules the kingdom. And that's kind of, which, which is the Nabal who he's really going after here? Is it the son, Amnon, or the father? Who's the fool at this point? I mean, who's a greater fool? Amnon's a fool, don't get me wrong. But there is a greater fool, right? Somebody who participated in this whole thing, who's not even present when it's going on. Now, the revenge must have seemed doubly sweet to Absalom, for he had succeeded in using the very same tactics to destroy Amnon that Amnon had used to destroy Tamar. 
Absalom then, I'm going to skip actually down to the end. What, hap- what does he do? He just leaves. He runs away to some family members in, in, a, in a, the kingdom of Geshur. It's a buffer state between Israel and Syria. Remember, David has conquered everybody, and you have these buffer states, and it's all, they're somewhat related to through marriage and whatnot. And so what, what, what Absalom does is he flees the land, but as he fled the, the land for the same reason Dave, David fled the land. David fled the land because there was a murderer after him. David's son flees the land because he is a murderer. You see, what, what happened in one generation? Right? David, righteous David, living in the desert, living with his three, 600 men out in the wilderness. David, who's pursued unrighteously under the ends of the earth, now has a son who's fleeing, but not fleeing because he's fleeing from a murderer, but he's fleeing as a murderer. Now, when the feast had turned to slaughter, this is also funny to me, frankly. This part's funny, but it's, it's like not laugh out loud funny. But here's David, right? Who's good with a sword? David's good with a sword, right? He kills his, what, ten thousands. And you got all his sons there, and they see Absalom with a sword in his hand, or, or all these guys, I'm sorry, Absalom's men, with swords in their hands, slaughtering a brother, and they all get up on donkeys and run? What, what happened here, Right? <laughs> David used to do all kinds of wild things uh, in the name of God that, that seemed outrageous, but he would win in, right, in battle. He would take on anybody. He would take on any number of people. He would do all kinds of wild things in the name of the Lord and succeed. And here, how many of us, if we're sitting around and somebody starts stabbing our brother like he's Caesar, right? And everybody sticks a, a pin in him. How many of us would just be like, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to go. This party seems like it's kind of turned. You know, I, I think we ate all the lamb. Bye. Right? And you hear the screams of Amnon in, in the background as you, like, turn your car on and drive down the road. What happened to this, his household? Who are these people? They're not David's sons, are they? Now, the report comes that all of the kids have died. David, all your sons are dead. And this is, the, this is, again, the irony of this whole thing. This fool who, who was helping his son Amnon uh, rape his daughter, Jonadab, is the guy, right? He's the cousin. He's this guy in the household. He's like, no, 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 come on, David. It's just your son Amnon is killed. Now, on any given day, you come to David and you say, hey, your son Amnon was murdered. David would tear his hair out. He'd be so upset. But now he, he's, he lives in this madhouse of a world in which he's told that his son Amnon is, oh, no, your son Amnon was murdered. And he's like, oh, phew, good. Oh, that's good news. Because he thought it was everybody. And he, he's so completely turned his world upside down that this kind of good news, your son was murdered, actually becomes good news that's deliverance. Oh, thank goodness. So much joy in my heart. Now, what kind of world do you have to live in where this kind of bad news is good news? And, and I think that this is right here, this right here. Put, put your finger there, this little section, and this is a section that many of us need to think about. Because has this happened to you where you hear news that's actually terrible? And, and you're, you're, you're living in, in the kind of sin, the kind of unrepentant sin, the kind of situation where it is topsy-turvy because you are reviling the word of God and where good, bad news like this turns out to be good news. Right? I mean, I, Trump became president. I'm sorry. I'm just going to say it. That was bad news that we all thought was good news. Yay! 
And when you stop and you think, you're like, wait, what? How bad is the household of the United States where bad news, like Orange Man, turns out to be good news? And it's the kind of thing that most of us don't even notice. If, if I were living in this country 150 years ago and you bring forth this man, I'd be like, wow, wow. Uh, England should just go ahead and invade, invade us and make, this, make it stop. But now we're like, oh, yay! <laughs> Look at this bad news. This is better than the other bad news that we thought we were going to get. And, and there's something to this where the whole world gets turned on its head because we revile the word of God. The United States is, 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 is experiencing its own helter-skelter at the moment. And we don't even recognize it for what it is. How is it that after everything he's been through, all the good that he has experienced, how is it that Jonadab actually knows more about what's going on than David? And this happens. There are worldly wise men who are super cunning, who get it. Who get it. They can see the stitches on the fastball. And, and they, are, they don't love God. And they actually are wiser than the sons of God. How is David more foolish than Jonadab? Sin. Right? Because he gave up all the wisdom that he had, all the insight that he had, because of his own selfish desires. And this is what happens. The world owns us very often with its cunning and with its worldly wisdom, because what we are is we are unwise because we're corrupted by sin. Because when, right, the better something is, when you add sin to it, the more corrupt it becomes. Right? So if you have an unbeliever... Right? There's sin there. But that's not as bad as somebody like David, who then falls into sin willingly, and his corruption is more because his goodness is more. And this is something that C.S. Lewis tried to explain. The better something is, when it becomes corrupted, the worse the corruption is. So David, who was wiser than everybody, goes to, not to, like, to the extreme back of the line now, behind Jonadab, of all people, because of what? Because he saw a woman bathing on, on top of the roof. Because he wasn't out with his men fighting, fighting the battle. Because God had promised him that he would build a house. And he was like, no, my house, whatever. I want that guy's house. I want what's inside that dude's house. And you know what? I'm gonna, I'll do whatever I got to do to that guy to get his house. And he turns his entire world upside down. And now he's not as wise as Jonadab. Right? And, <laughs> We see Jonah Daz, we're like, how is this guy smarter than I am? And well, what have you been up to? What have you been up to? Why are the sons of God outwitted by fools? By men who are corrupt. Men who come up with the kind of plans that Jonadab did to help Amnon rape Tamar. How is it that we're getting outsmarted by those people? Because Congress is full of them. It's true. You know how many felons are in Congress? Don't even get me started. Right? And how are we outsmarted by these people? Right? Because they're so smart or because we are all compromised so much with sin? Because the state of the church is such that, of course, we're going to get owned by these guys. <sighs> I'm just sorry. It's just like, Yay! Oh, it's only Amnon. Good, good. Thank you, Jonah Dab. I'm so relieved. I'm like, David, what happened to you? <sighs> all right. Already, what we see is the prophecy of Nathan that the sword would never depart from his house was working out in his experience. 
The sword has come, and David has got the wrong end of it, and it's just tearing him up. Right? If you have the wrong end of the shovel, go out, and, <laughs> go out and try digging a hole. What's going to happen? If you have the wrong end of a sword and you're going to fight, what's going to happen? David has the wrong end of the sword. David has the wrong end of the shovel. And, and it's nothing but bloody, a bloody mess. Now, in his reactions to situations up until 2 Samuel chapter 11, David was the opposite of Saul and was Saul's opposite in God's treatment of him. He did all the things he was supposed to do. And God gave him nothing but grace and mercy and kindness and blessing. God's grace was richly lavished upon him. He spent it, and he spent all of it on God's glory and the good of God's people. But then David reverses direction. David, serving self, has gotten, again, the wrong end of the sword, the wrong end of the shovel, and this is damaging and painful. This is David's helter-skelter. This is David's topsy-turvy world. David treated Bathsheba, who wasn't his wife, as if she were his wife. David used the sword of the Ammonites against Uriah instead of the sword of Uriah against the Ammonites. David's household, built to be a source of good for God's kingdom, has become a source of evil for God's kingdom. Injustice instead of justice, death instead of life, David has placed self on the throne, and self is a deviant and devastating and deadly master. There is no one worse than self. You put self on the throne, it is over. It's like fighting somebody holding on to the wrong end of a sword. God promised to build David's house, and David reviled his word of promise and pursued Uriah's house to its its utter ruin, and that has now led to his utter ruin. David's house is the opposite of what it should be. We have sons violating sisters and brothers murdering siblings. David, through sin, has turned the world upside down. After Amnon's crime, there is no justice. There's no trial. There's a murder conspiracy. And that's not justice. A sheep-shearing festival celebrating provision, productivity, and life becomes a public assassination. Right? Here's everybody, cups full of wine, nothing but piles of wool around you, and boom, they stab, right? And all the wool's red now. Absalom quotes Joshua, the conqueror of the promised land, as he sets in motion a civil war that will, in fact, tear the promised land into bits. Amnon is another Nabal, but there's no Lady Wisdom. There's no Abigail to turn aside the, turn aside the wrath of David's son. David cannot see that twisted Jon- what Jonadab can, because he's, through his sin, become less wise than Jonadab. David went into exile to escape a murderer, while his, sons go, his son goes into exile as a murderer. This is opposite world. It's a mockery. David and all the characters become antitypes of what they ought to be. It's not a shadow. It's a void, an absolute void. Darkness reigns because David reviled God's word. That's what started this whole thing. When we revile God's word, we live in a helter-skelter world. Life is death and joy is sorrow. Good is evil and evil is good. Reviling God's word turns the world upside down where bad news is good news that comforts us. And the only way to set it right is how? It's the only way. You go back, how do you undo all of this? You set the word of God in its proper place. You don't revile it, you revere it. You don't hate it, you love it. Psalm 56, verse 4. It says, In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Psalm 56, verses 10 through 13. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? 
I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from faltering, faltering, that I may walk before God in the light of life. And when you love self more than God, when God's word falls in your affections and you revile it, you are turning your world upside down. Your kids, your marriage, your ministry, your nation, and the world is in fact upside down, isn't it? <laughs> What's next? It makes me a little afraid. Right? And be, when you study history, like when it comes to America, the only thing left now is Babylon coming in over the hills and conquering us all and taking us all away in slavery. Like you look at, you know, I mean, the prophets are kind of running out of judgments. You're like, you know, I'm reading the end here and I'm like, you know, we're kind of running out. There's not a lot of options. Repent and believe, that's an option. Or the next thing you know, we're all going to have chains. Going back to last week, we have to remember the God that we're dealing with. Because where is he? Where is he right now? What's he thinking right now? What's he doing right now? Has he changed? Has his desire changed? Has his thoughts about us changed? Hosea, chapter 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down so that he will bind us up. Why, why has this happened to us? So that we will turn to his loving and healing hand and what? Feel his love and be healed. So that we would take his word and cease reviling it, instead revering it and placing it upon the throne in our hearts where it belongs and the world goes whoop, 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 whoop. Now when that happens, all kinds of stuff that was on the ceiling is now going to fall onto the floor and we're going to have some rearranging to do. Don't get me wrong. But I'm tired of the topsy-turvy world. I'm tired of the helter-skelter. And the only way to do it is not by running for Congress, not by becoming a Supreme Court justice, not by starting, what, a podcast. Okay? The only way to do it is to, re- is, is to revere the word of God, to love the Lord Jesus Christ, to set him always before me, and to pursue him at all costs. And, and what will that do? That will set my children's world right side up, my wife's world right side up, my church right side up, my community right side up. It's the only thing that will because it's the only thing that ever has. Reviling God's word brings a sword. Praising God's word brings safety. When David received God's word and, and he did so rejoicing in it and obeying it, nothing could touch him. Nothing. And as soon as he gave that up, Nothing can keep him safe. Nothing. Nothing. It's all up for grabs now. In fact, he's the one helping all the plotters work out all their plots. There's no safety. The only safety is the word of God. The only safety is God. And and when, when we get that right, the whole world ceases to be upside down and topsy turvy and helter skelter, and everything begins to be set right. In the name of the Father and the Son and Holy Ghost, and amen. Father, we thank you so much for the ministry of the prophets, Lord, recording uh, David's struggles, struggles very like our own. We pray, God, that as we consider our own hearts and minds, as we consider the helter-skelter world of, of North America, that you would help us to repent and to believe, to obey the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ, to love the law of grace and goodness, 
to obey, to set the word of God in its proper place so that the world would be set right. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your son and amen. Amen.